Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Please consider supporting Black Women United, YEG, for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. You can learn more about them at bwunited.ca. Uh, they are always looking for donations and volunteers. So please, again, support Black Women United, YEG, for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. Again, that website is bwunited.ca. Hi, I'm Jed Bodwin, and I live in Wichita, Kansas. I am a Patreon supporter for Creative Control. I discovered Creative Control some years ago, I think maybe while looking for interviews with Tommy Stinson of The Replacements, and uh, I stumbled across this conversation that Vish had with Tommy Stinson that was really insightful. Vish held his own. I think Tommy can be a little bit of a difficult interview at times, and it went really well, and it really uh, got into some areas that I wasn't expecting, and I thought, gosh, I have to listen to more of this guy and his podcast. Sometimes I'm not necessarily a fan of the music or musicians that uh, Vish will have on the show, but I always appreciate their creative process a little bit more. And uh, more times than not, though, it does lead me to uh, finding a new musical artist that I'm interested in or to think a little bit differently about maybe some artists whose work I've overlooked. So, you know, go ahead, and if you've been waiting at all to support Vish and Creative Control, now is probably the best time to do it. I know as a public radio employee here in Kansas, listener-supported broadcasting, whether it's podcasts or radio itself, really isn't a thing of the past. It's actually very much a thing of both the present and the future. So, yay Vish, yay Creative Control. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, Please visit patreon.com slash creative control today. Creative Control with Vish Khanna. Cliff Nesteroff is an esteemed historian and author who has long made a home for himself in Hollywood, California. Originally from British Columbia in Canada, Nesteroff is a former stand-up comedian whom the New York Times once dubbed the premier popular historian of comedy, and whom you may have seen turn up as an expert in many recent documentaries about comedy over the last few years. That's because Nesterov's wonderful books, including The Comedians, Drunks, Thieves, Scoundrels, and the History of American Comedy, and also We Had a Little Real Estate Problem, The Unheralded Story of Native Americans in Comedy, are absolute essential reads for fans and students of the comedic arts. 
On November 28, 2023, Abrams Books published Nesterov's latest book. It's a timely one called Outrageous, A History of Showbiz and the Culture Wars. And it prompted Cliff to make his third appearance on this very show to dive into why he wrote Outrageous and what it's all about, historical cycles, media literacy and the lack thereof, new taboos, future plans, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners just like you who follow and subscribe to this donor-driven podcast and spread the word about it, and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash creative control. That is the primary source of revenue for all of the work that goes into making the show. If you look at it, you'll be like, what? That doesn't seem like enough money for all the work that seemingly goes into making the show. Well, you're correct. If you can uh, donate today, that would be helpful. If you have the means, looking for a new $10, well, $10 American a month donors. So if you're interested in supporting this show and all my work, I appreciate it greatly. And you might be hearing more about that in the near future. But anyway, for now, please visit patreon.com slash creative control. Thank you very much. Plus, in-kind support from independent businesses like Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee, respectively, in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario. This is episode 824 of Creative Control, featuring the lovely and talented Cliff Nesteroff with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hey, Cliff, how's it going? Good, Vish. Nice to uh, chat with you again. Where in the world are you today? I'm in uh, Hollywood, USA, as they used to say at the end of every Tom and Jerry cartoon, made in Hollywood, USA, which (laughs) as we approach four years from the Olympics coming to this city again, construction is in full effect. So if you hear anything in the background, it's because they're rebuilding the city in order to um, maximize real estate profiteering. Oh boy, the, the, these Olympics, they come to every town and they displace everyone, uh, particularly those who are unhoused. Uh, is that what's going on in your neighborhood already? Well, not quite. It's going to happen, but yeah. some of the construction has uh, has amplified in recent history. And uh, yeah. there is a cement truck idling outside my window. They were waiting until we started recording this to begin their construction. <laughs> they specifically told me that that's how they were going to do it. So, Well, given uh, some of uh, the people you uh, uh, profile in this book, I would not be surprised if these are corporate interests that sent a cement truck over here <laughs> to curb us from talking about them. Uh, listen, uh, Cliff, as you know, I'm a big fan of your work. Uh, it means a lot to me. I like all your books. Uh, this is no different. Congratulations on Outrageous. I hope you're feeling proud of yourself. However, I do want to frame this. I think in your previous books that I've read, I would imagine you might have left them, finished them up, and thought, you know, you might have a warm glow. You might have a feeling of accomplishment and, and, and a good feeling somehow, I, I'm curious, I don't mean to ask you a leading question, how did you feel after actually completing this book? How did you feel about the world? How did you feel about yourself? 
Well, how I felt had nothing to do with the content of the book. Perhaps you, your leading question is that, you know, as explained in the book, there's sometimes nefarious political players that create chaos within our body politic, and maybe that left me with a, a weird feeling. But that is not the case. Oh. Uh, the, the only weird feeling it left me with is that once you start to do something frequently enough, what starts out feeling very unique and special becomes almost commonplace. Mm. So I was probably the most excited with my first book because I'd never had a book deal before and I couldn't believe that I didn't have to have a job for three years, that I would just be paid to write what I wanted to write. So it was so exciting. But now, a decade later, it almost is something that I take for granted and it feels commonplace. Mm. And so after so much attention from the first book, as the third book approaches publication date, I'm like, how come I'm not getting more attention? You know, <laughs> instead of being grateful for just having a book deal. So that's sort of the feeling it has left me with is, is that anticipation of expecting the same uh, successes or failures that I have experienced with the previous two books. Hmm. So your feelings are more about the experiential aspect of being an author uh, in a time of great illiteracy, perhaps. Uh, man, all my yeah, questions are going to be yes. leading questions, but you just you sound a little jaded. Is that is it fair to say you're just a little less innocent and wide eyed about this whole process? No, not at all. I'm not. I'm not jaded. Okay, I, I'm just a little bit dispassionate when it comes to. I don't know. Some people might read this book and be left with an ominous feeling, or I've heard already from some people that both this book gives them hope and hopelessness in the sense that I talk about culture sort of repeating itself over the course of a hundred years. And it's like, geez, so there's no way out of this. But at the same time, the way it repeats is, well, maybe things aren't as bad as we think because we've survived already hmm. for all this time through the same type of bullshit. So it could uh, leave one with a feeling of hope or a feeling of hopelessness, depending on your perspective. I wouldn't say jaded, no. Okay. I'm writing about America and American culture and American culture wars. Mm. And being from Canada, we always have that sort of outsider perspective where it's horrible. But yes, we sort of feel like, well, at least it's not us. Even though I live here, I still sort of retain that philosophy. I don't have the right to vote. I don't have the luxury of taking the risk of, you know, protesting something and then getting arrested, you know, they don't just arrest you and release you if you're a non-citizen, you get deported. So mm. all of these things kind of leave me outside the fray just slightly. Yeah. And it might seem sort of uh, selfish or reactionary to say that because of that, I have less... Uh, concern in a way, like I have less at stake. It's almost like you're watching a TV show that is called America as opposed to being a participant in it, even though I live here. Yeah. I don't know how to explain it exactly. Yeah. It may be a privileged attitude to have where I feel like I'm not as directly affected as people that are born and raised here. But I think it also gives me an ability to assess things for a book like this that is not as uh, polemical as it might be if I lived here. Mm. So I'm not somebody who 
is going to hate on Donald Trump and then pretend that Joe Biden is a great orator. Um, I'm not going to condemn Joe Biden and then pretend that Donald Trump is a great Christian. Yeah. But that is often the paradigm here in America. And coming from Canada, the way phrases like liberal or conservative or are looked at or the way the term right wing or left wing is interpreted is different in Canada than it is in America. Yeah. In America, if you're in favor of universal health care, a lot of people think you're a left wing extremist. Whereas in Canada, conservative politicians don't campaign with the promise of abolishing uh, uh, health care. Yeah. You know? So yeah. there's just a different sort of attitude. And coming here with that attitude, I think – uh, skews me in a way that maybe is uh, I don't I don't want to say more objective necessarily, but it certainly is a I, I don't know how to explain it. It just gives me a slightly different uh, interpretation. Some of the great movies that are about Los Angeles were done by people who were from different countries. Mm -hmm. And I think it just gives one a slightly different perspective that maybe most Americans don't have. So my question is, uh, you've described some measure of objectivity you have as a Canadian in America. Uh, you are uh, someone who uh, got into this work as a comedian yourself. Do you, have, uh, do you feel like you have objectivity in the realm of show business? I know you love show business. I know you love the history of show business. But do you have a similar kind of objectivity as someone who's looking at show business, as someone who's involved but kind of peripheral if that i don't mean to does that sound insulting i'm not saying you're not in showbiz you're to me you're showbiz personified cliff i just want to say that but do you have that level of objectivity about what you describe in this book and how hollywood works how the popular culture industry works in relation to some of the politics that uh, get immersed in it i don't know if i would refer to it as objectivity or not objectivity so much as perspective it gives me a general understanding. So, for instance, when people outside of comedy will say, well, uh, you can't joke about anything anymore. People are trying to suppress comedians. There's no free speech anymore. And they'll use examples of a comedian maybe being attacked physically. So when uh, Dave Chappelle was playing the Hollywood Bowl, somebody from the crowd rushed the stage and had to be uh, subdued. And, and, you know, Howie Mandel, who's from Canada, said, this is the death of comedy. This is the end of comedy. This is where it's headed to. Yeah. But having done stand-up, and Howie Mandel, I think, should have known better, having done stand-up before the era of YouTube, before the era of Facebook or Twitter or the word podcast, I quit before those things were created, yeah. I can recall five different incidences in which I was, uh, in, you know, in, in retrospect, I would say assaulted. At the time, I didn't think of it as assault so much as just uh, another shitty gig. But I can remember a gig in Toronto in Parkdale in which I was on stage. In those days, I was doing an insult comic act. And so it sometimes rubbed people the wrong way to be insulted. And uh, yeah. I was on stage at this dive bar in Parkdale, and it was this huge, vacuous room, this giant beer hall, dimly lit, but you could see the back of the room from the stage. And I remember being on stage, doing my act, and you could see in the middle of 
the bar where people lined up to order drinks. There was a line, and there was a guy at the back of the line. He was slowly inching his way up to the front, and I was paying no mind to him. I just saw it through my peripheral vision while I was doing my act. This man ordered a full pitcher of beer, took the pitcher of beer, started to walk back to what I presumed was his table, inching closer and closer to the stage, walked up on the stage and dumped the entire thing over my head. Oh, no. Now, this man paid money and waited patiently in my, in line <laughs> just to get a pitcher of beer that he could dump on my head. That happened to me again three years later in Vancouver. Completely different situation, completely different gig, completely different huh. person. Today, if that happened... People would decry it as the war on comedy, the death of free speech. People can't take a joke anymore. People are too sensitive these days. There are three other incidences I can think where somebody attempted to throttle me or punch me or choke me uh, in the context of my stand-up career. So I can mm. think of five incidences like that offhand right now in my mind, all of which took place either in the late 1990s or the early 2000s before this talking point and this controversy occurred. So right. that gives me some perspective about yeah. the fact that things like that have happened throughout the history of stand-up comedy. And especially when you're working in bars where people are frequently intoxicated and often when you're doing an act like I did, which was very combative and obnoxious, it could really trigger that type of reaction. But I never characterized it as some sort of grand scheme or some sort of generational value or something indicative of a greater force happening in history or culture or the country. So when I think back on those things, I realize that when somebody complains about the uh, uh, tenor in the uh, comedy audience today, I feel like it doesn't really bode true and that often there's a more propagandistic sort of intent behind that argument that it's mm. liberals, that it's college students, that it's millennials uh, who, who are anti-free speech and this is indicative of what colleges are fostering and teaching or this is indicative of safe spaces and all that shit. Mm. It seems like there's somebody who has a concerted intent to demonize their political adversaries and will use comedy as a cudgel in the comedy in the uh, culture war yeah. uh, to further that point. So you've offered your perspective on what those incidents might be construed as today. Let's go back to them for a moment because tellingly they all occurred in Canada, supposedly a very nice and polite and civil country. What did you make of them at the time? What did you characterize them as? Random acts of violence or something else? I didn't even think of them as violence. I just thought of it as what happens when you do stand-up. Hmm. It's normal. Know? Well, it's normal when you're at that level of doing shitty bars and open mics and gigs where the audience is there to drink and didn't know that there was a comedy show that night. Yeah. It's not necessarily indicative of doing, you know, Massey Hall or the Orpheum Theater or one of these beautiful ornate venues in Canada. Right. But when you're at the low level of doing club OVs at Dufferin and Queen or this is before they built giant skyscrapers everywhere when it was still like a neighborhood that people said, well, why are you doing uh, shows there? You should avoid that neighborhood. Yeah. It, it, it was par for the course. And so some of those other incidences occurred at a place called the Cobalt in Vancouver, which was 
at the time a uh, well-known dive bar, punk bar. You know, the bathrooms were disgusting. The, the roof was leaking brown water. There were roaches all around. Yeah. So it sort of fit the atmosphere. I also did well at those venues. I also frequently killed in those venues. But when chaos ensued, it just seemed typical of Canadian low-level stand-up gigs mm. and road gigs as well. You know, I would do motor inns connected to liquor stores and most of your audience were people who were there waiting for their off sales you know it was not really glamorous show business by any stretch of the imagination but it gave me a great grounding in what stand-up comics do what they go through what a road gig is um, how thankless it can be, how low the pay is, and how you pay your dues in order to establish yourself, become good. And, you know, in America, in Los Angeles, there's a cliche about how many Canadians there are, how many funny Canadians there are, why are Canadians funny? Of course, coming from Canada, I know that the majority of Canadians aren't funny. Some are <laughs> hilarious, but most of them aren't funny. And I always tell Americans I can introduce you to a lot of humorless Canadians if you want. I've encountered them my entire life. But the the, the other theory of why there is so many uh, funny Canadians in America, my theory, is that because in Canada, Canadians get so much practice. They get so much practice ridiculing Americans, for one. But also, whenever a quote-unquote new Canadian comedian emerges in America, there's somebody who's toiled in those disparate uh, venues yeah. for years and years and years and years in obscurity, constantly being faced with uh, uh, apathy, or in my case, you know, drunken assaults. And so by the time you get to America and you are seemingly brand new, you have all of this uh, worn experience that helps serve you uh, when you're actually playing a nice venue. So if you play like a, a, a proper comedy venue and everybody's there to watch comedy yeah. and you have to deal with one drunk, when you get to play a beautiful regular comedy venue where everybody's there to see stand-up comedy and you have to deal with just one drunk or one heckler or one broken glass or whatever, it's nothing. It's so easy to contend with. Yeah. When I used to perform at the Cobalt, because I was an insult comic, because I was an obnoxious comic, it often invited the audience to be obnoxious. Yeah. So at that venue, instead of just one heckler, I would be dealing with 25 hecklers. And some people would come there just to heckle. And it was good for an insult comic because I could just respond by putting the person down and I'd get a big laugh. Yeah. But I became so adept at that in that situation that in any other situation, dealing with one heckler or one unruly person was easy, hmm. you know, and it was just the experience gave me the ability to uh, deal with any situation. Yeah. And it was not intimidating in any way. So that grounding not only gives one perspective about this naysaying you hear in the culture today about, oh, war on free speech, you can't say anything anymore. It also just gives one an understanding about what the experience of stand-up comedy actually is. I was going to ask about this, and I don't mean to take us down a tangent that might make us sound like grumpy old men, but do you think that the relationship with paying one's dues is a lot different? For younger comedians, given just the way the media landscape works, like what I don't want to say that people might feel entitled to success more quickly, 
but maybe that's swimming around in what we're talking about right now. I don't think so. It, it not if you start on stage. Hmm. Maybe that entitlement would occur if you were a success online first before ever attempting to go on stage. Right. There was a woman a few years back in the earliest days of uh, YouTube stars uh, named Jenna Marbles. Mm-hmm. And she had a viral video back in whatever it was, 2009 or 10, called uh, something to the effect of how to trick boys into thinking you're pretty. And it was a, it was a, it was a funny video and it got millions of views and it made her famous. Yeah. And her videos on YouTube were funny. So after receiving whatever, 20 million subscribers, something like that, maybe more, she decided she would start doing stand-up, and she started going down to the Laugh Factory in Hollywood, and they put on the marquee Jenna Marbles, and because she had so many online followers, these shows were packed, but she had never done stand-up before, hmm. and she didn't have an act, and it takes a long time to develop an act, and it's a different animal than just talking on the radio or doing a YouTube video, and so she struggled for five or six months and ultimately quit. Because it didn't translate. You had to develop a whole different skill. You had to develop public speaking skills. You had to develop mic technique. You had to develop an actual act. And so it didn't translate. It didn't transfer from one to the other. And so I don't know if entitlement is the right word, but certainly there was probably an expectation that if you can entertain 20 million people in a YouTube video that it would automatically transfer to the stand-up stage. However, if somebody had started on the stand-up stage first, I think they would know that right away. Yeah, yeah. They'd be a bit hardened. I I appreciate that. Well, listen, I want to get back to uh, Outrageous specifically. Um, We've talked a little bit about aspects of the book kind of inadvertently, but what I haven't had a chance to ask you about is what actually spurred this idea on. Tell us exactly where this germ of an idea came from for you. What made you think this was fodder for for a book? Well, I just see a lot of misinformation uh, floating through the atmosphere, and it had nothing necessarily specifically to do with one's personal politics. You know, if something is repeated often enough, uh, eventually people are going to believe it. And so for the past several years, we have heard over and over, you can't say anything anymore, you can't joke about anything anymore, this is the death of free speech, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And in my experience, in my uh, consumption of show business and history, comedy from all decades, film, TV, music from all decades... It seems to me that the the truth is exactly the opposite, that there's more freedom of speech in comedy and in all the arts landscape today than at any previous time. And that doesn't mean there aren't new taboos, but the handful of new taboos are used as the quote-unquote evidence that you can't joke about anything anymore. And the taboos are primarily slurs, either racial slurs or gender slurs that in the 1990s were more commonly invoked. And even then, some people might react the wrong way. You may or may not want to use this. I'm going to say the slurs. So the new taboos today primarily are the slurs fag or faggot, retard, and tranny. Mm. Those are the three terms that you heard not uncommonly in stand-up comedy in the 1990s. And then to a lesser extent, there are other slurs 
that are also taboo, but they're much less commonly invoked. Mm-hmm. Redskin, gypsy, mulatto, in some circles, midget. So those terms are largely taboo today in a way that they were not in the 1990s. Although, like I say, there were still people advocating for the uh, removal of those words in various contexts, Mm -hmm. even back then. Mm -hmm. Which is, I mean, you highlight an example of this from decades ago, particularly with this uh, program, Amos and Andy. Similar kinds of conversations where uh, people were enlightened, usually by by the means of uh, other people protesting, the usage, the language usage, and the imagery and the stereotypes. This is part of a cycle that we go through. And where I'm confused, or rather, I don't know if I'm confused about it. I think I understand people pretty well. What I don't quite get is how we get to this point where we seem to, in a social contract sort of way, resolve what we've decided is appropriate or not. But all of a sudden, the same things come back a decade or two later, and the same kinds of discussions come back a decade or two later. This cycle that you've identified is what I find particularly compelling about your book, that the John Birch Society is not unlike all these freedom caucuses and freedom convoys and whatnot. Can you speak to this? I know you alluded to this earlier, and I'm sorry I interrupted you, but can you speak to this cyclical nature of humans living our lives and not learning anything from, (laughs) it's seemingly not learning from our mistakes? Well, a lot of these cycles play on human emotion and exploit a lack of information. You know, history is boring to learn about for the Mm -hmm. most part, partially because of the way it's presented. It's a great irony to me that I'm a historian because I slept through (laughs) every social studies class I ever had. Like literally, I, I remember eighth grade social studies. We didn't have a class called history in uh, my small school in British Columbia. It was called social studies, but it was essentially the same thing. Yeah. I can rem- I can remember literally falling asleep in the eighth grade in social sl- studies. And when I woke up, my mouth was full of pens and pencils that the kids had put into my mouth because I had like a slack jaw <laughs> as I snored. And so that was me in history class, literally sleeping through the whole thing. It was boring. I remember the term Vimy Ridge. That's about it. Right. And it, just was dull. And even reading, the way reading was presented, the books that we were expected to read were boring. And I don't think I ever completed a book assignment honestly in school. You know, I would pretend to have read the book and write a report based on the cover. You know, it was a very Bart Simpson way of doing it. Sure. And so it's ironic to me, personally, all these decades later that I'm a historian and somebody who reads because I found it so boring So I actually sympathize with people who don't like to read or don't want to read because for most people, regardless of their intelligence, it is a chore. So I sympathize with that. But you can exploit that. You can take advantage of that because people don't read. You can say things that aren't true and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and people will fall for it. And not stupid people, all people. You could be intelligent and be easily manipulated through flashy tactics combined with repetition. Yeah. And so we see that on social media all the time. And so that occurred in the past as well. And each new stage of technology sort of makes it all that more stealth. 
So first newspapers, then radio, then television, and now the internet have been great tools in the service of propaganda and certainly in the service of repetition. When each of these mediums started, there was a hope that they would help further education and intelligence. In the 1920s, there was a debate about what the use of radio would be. Would it be a way to spread national education? The idea of a radio network, they thought, well, it could be a university of the air. We can tutor people in rural areas who don't have access to good schools and everybody could become smarter. The other proposition was that it could become a medium for advertising, mass advertising. Corporations could commandeer the airwaves and we can sell products on a mass scale. And then other people said, no, we, we could have a, a education on a mass scale. And so that was a big debate that waged in America in the late 1920s. And we know what happened. Yeah. It became a vehicle for mass advertising and not mass education. Right. When the so-called information superhighway was first announced in the 1990s, the advent of the Internet, the exact same debate. This could make everybody much smarter. We'll have every bit of information at our fingertips. It'll make people more intelligent. Has that occurred? Or has the opposite occurred? Has it been used as a vehicle for disinformation and for lies and for incitement? And has it made people maybe slightly stupider yeah. rather than smarter? Yeah. So you're right. There's these cycles that repeat throughout history, but they can only repeat if people are not aware of what has previously occurred. Yeah. Uh, war propaganda today is not going to work on people who remember what happened in 2003 but it will work on people who weren't alive then or who people who have forgotten. Yeah. And uh, that's uh, important that people don't remember things in order for you to continue uh, to manipulate them. Well, you're, as, as someone, uh, as, as an inadvertent historian, I guess is a way to categorize you, mm-hmm. it seems to me in your book that this time isn't as unique as I like to think it is. It isn't particularly bleak. It may be just a cycle of bleakness that we've people generations before us have gone through i i I always fear that by saying that things aren't maybe as bleak as you think they are that it's going to sound reactionary right like i'm saying like like i'm shrugging like don't be concerned about war or bigotry or injustice i'm not saying that no but if you had an iphone and a twitter account in 1939 um things would look pretty fucking bad and the thing that's very different today as opposed to then, when I was a kid, my dad would buy the newspaper, but he only bought it on Sundays, the big fat one. Right. He didn't buy the newspaper on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Right. And he would read that entire Sunday paper. But once he finished reading it, he threw it out. It went to the recycling or he used it to lay down on the ground when they had to paint something. Right. You know, he, he didn't continuously reread the same headline over and over and over and over <laughs> all day and all night right. every time there was a lull in his life. Right. If he was at a traffic light, a long red light, he didn't reach over, grab the newspaper and start reading the headlines sure. again. Yeah. If he was waiting in line at a store, he didn't pick up the newspaper and start rereading the headlines again. But that's what we do now with our iPhone and social media. We scroll and scroll and scroll and we reread and reread and reread the same bits of information the same headlines over and over and it has this reinforcing effect it's like things have never been this bad 
but it's because you have not never reinforced it so much repeatedly all day and all night, day after day after day, whereas in the past you read it once in the newspaper and then you got rid of it. So things were pretty terrible in the past. I mean, imagine scrolling through your Twitter account in the late 30s, early 40s. You'd be like, oh, my God, the Hitler-Stalin pact. Hitler's invaded this country. Oh, my God, concentration camps. Oh, they're going to intern yeah. Japanese-Americans. Oh, Jim Crow, they're lynching black people. Oh, this senator has just used the N-word on the floor of Congress. Like, I mean... It would seem incapacitating. I just want to give you a quick anecdote slash example of the way maybe our memories can distort things. My next door neighbor is 98 years old. She was in most episodes of Dragnet on radio and on TV. Oh, wow. She, she moved to Hollywood in the year 1942. She wasn't born in 1942. She moved to Hollywood in 1942. Huh. And she wanted to break into show business here. And she got herself a job to make ends meet at Thrifty Drugstore on Hollywood Boulevard. Thrifty's was a drugstore chain here. Mm -hmm. And I asked her, I said, wow, Hollywood Boulevard in 1942, what was it like? And, you know, that's the tourist district where the Walk of Fame is now and... You know, I watch a lot of Turner Classic movies. You watch these movies from the 30s and 40s. Everybody's so glamorous. They're in suits and fedoras and beautiful dresses. And everybody's well-mannered. And it just seems like such a classy era. And I said, well, what was Hollywood Boulevard like in 1942? Because if you've ever been there today, it's run down. There's garbage everywhere. There's a homeless crisis going on. Mm. Tourists come from Canada and every part of the world to Hollywood Boulevard. And they leave a little bit uh, disappointed. Right. So I asked her, what was Hollywood Boulevard like in 1942? My 98-year-old neighbor goes, oh, it was horrible. It was just the worst. I was terrified at all times. Yeah. I go, wait, 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 wait. What do you mean you were terrified? She goes, well, I was working at the thrifty drugstore and women would come in trying to forge uh, prescriptions to get morphine and, and opiates and they had wounds all over their legs and they were acting all crazy. Hmm. I go, what? In 1942, Hollywood Boulevard? She goes, yes, it was just drug addicts everywhere. I was afraid to walk home. I said, 1942, not... 2022, not 2002, not 1992, not 1982, 1942. She goes, yes, it was wartime. Everybody was full of anxiety. Their husbands were off to war. Some of them had died. We didn't know if Hitler was going to invade us. We didn't know if the bomb was going to be used against us. Everybody was full of anxiety and people resorted to drugs. Hmm. And I thought, wow. So my entire perception of Hollywood in the early 1940s is based on old movies which never would show somebody with wounds in their legs or somebody crippled with anxiety or somebody forging a prescription or addicted to drugs. So my whole idea of what the past was like was completely distorted. And it was more like today than we had ever, most people of my generation would have ever concluded. Hmm. But this was coming from the source of somebody who was still alive and was here in 1942. Right. So I just use that as a random example of how our concept of history can be completely distorted because we have no knowledge of that history. And watching old movies, we feel like that gives us a sense of history. But even that is not the reality. Yeah. One of my takeaways from your book about these cycles is that for everything that seems horrible, 
the reason the, the, the horrible thing was curbed in some capacity or at least had to slink off and regroup is because there was an opposing uh, force, uh, in mm-hmm. many cases a positive one, trying to get rid of the bigots and the and the and the corporate interests who are trying to infiltrate whether they're uh, Hollywood movie studios or advertising companies or corporations like Coors and Junior Mints and and all these sorts of things that you outline in this book who had some nefarious and questionable allegiances. Where I was going when I started this line of questioning is you are an inadvertent historian. Part of these cycles is selective ahistoricism, selective erasure of facts. Did this book give you any greater perspective on the kind of political nature of that? Like people will say, for example, and I don't know who said this, make America great again. What are they getting at there? What part of the history do they want you to remember? And what part do they want you to forget? Do you think that aspect in your relationship as a historian, do you think the way we actually remember history plays as much of a role in these cycles as anything else? Because I'm I'm just trying to wrap my head around why we as a people keep doing the same things over and over again or having the same conversations over and over again. Like, I don't mean to suggest it was a, the greatest time ever, but when President Barack Obama was elected in the States— there was this feeling of, okay, we've rounded some sort of cultural, socio-political corner together here. And then by the next president in America, anyway, the world is starting to have this discussion about why can't I say the N-word? Why can't I say this? Why can't I do that? I don't know where I'm going with this. It's just a baffling thing to me. And I feel like some of that pondering and, and examination is swimming around and outrageous. And I wonder, as a historian, can you talk a little bit about how you view how history is selectively chosen as a precedent for whatever cause is going forward? Well, I have a quote in the intro to my book, which is from a completely different book that was written back in the 50s or 60s. I'm going to paraphrase it. But the quote that is in there observes that throughout history, I'm sure This is true throughout world history, but it's specifically talking about American history, that change is often mistaken for decline. Yeah. So when things change, somehow that's bad. And this is is something that all of us feel regardless of political persuasion. Certainly my friends and I here feel it in the architectural landscape as as buildings go away and new ones are erected, they all look terrible to us and the old ones look good. But if you study the evolution of architecture in the city in the 20s and 30s, everybody derided the new architecture, which uh, today we think is the best architecture. And so right. this has occurred constantly throughout history. It happens with movies. Nostalgia is a funny thing because everybody is nostalgic for their specific nostalgia. But if you're of a certain age, it's mystifying to you why a millennial would be nostalgic for the early 2000s. Right. Like that's that's garbage. But to them, it's like it was better than. And you can see this if you have the misfortune of perusing YouTube comment sections 
people are always saying when they watch an old clip, oh, back when things were good, back when things were fun, back when things were free, if only I had a time machine to go back then. And you can see that beneath any YouTube video that is a clip of anything from the past. It can be from the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s. As long as it's in the past, it was preferable. So we don't have the same perspective when we're living in it, you know. When we're living in something, we don't realize how good it is. It's always better when we look back, you know. When we think sure. of our youth, all of us, when we struggled, when we didn't have money, and it was such a suffering time. And then we look back 30 years later and think, oh, that was the best time of my life. Well, but it's, if, it's often remember, the time where we felt the most safe, too. I think that's what a lot of these players play upon, our fear of being adults and having to have real responsibilities and make decisions. I don't think it's a coincidence that it's always like, let's go back to a time that you fondly remember. But if you really step back and look at it, it's like, let's go back to a time when you were a child. And if you were fortunate, you had parents who took care of you and stuff like that. You know what I'm getting at? Well, bad experiences often become good memories. Maybe not when you're a child, that's bad experiences become trauma. Yeah. But as an adult, bad experiences often become good memories. And certainly my stand-up memories, some of the worst experiences are the fondest, funniest memories in retrospect and things that maybe didn't feel funny at the time or funny years later. Yeah. Anyway, it's just a interesting swirl of sort of temporal recycling. I don't even know what we're doing sometimes. You know what I'm getting at? I, I, it just seems baffling to me. Like, this book is great, and it, it's, it's sort of reassuring. Like, I think right. you said some of your friends... Uh, and colleagues who've read it have suggested, but I can't help but also feel like it's maddening to me that these cycles can continue. Like I say, the, I mean, obviously, I was around and of uh, I was in my 20s, I guess, when when 9-11 occurred. And so I know that that's a, a, an important benchmark in uh, in the world in terms of how we function now. But I do want to call back to what I was saying that I I can't believe that that country, the country you live in, went from one president to the other, and that seemed to impact everything and how everyone treated everyone. Like decorum was gone, civility was gone. Um, uh, perhaps in politics and perhaps on the internet. Yeah. But in everyday life, I haven't really noticed that unless you're attending a specific political protest where people are arguing in the streets, but certainly when you walk around the streets of America, it's not just people arguing. It's quite no, the contrary. Yeah, I, I suppose that's true. I, you, you mentioned the internet and social media, and I think some of these examples that I'm thinking of have only been amplified because they've been captured on social media, right? Fights. Well, and, even, even, yeah. even, even looping it back to comedy, when people have examples of how you can't say anything anymore or can't joke about anything anymore or so-called cancel culture... The majority of the examples are things outside the stand-up stage. They're things that are said on Twitter. They're things that are said on a podcast. Mm. They're actual physical acts of uh, behavior. But very seldom are there are they things that people are saying and doing on stage. You know, Dave Chappelle is a major exception. But the majority of the examples you come up with or either some sort of uh, bad behavior off stage, or a tweet or a podcast. So the internet helps 
create that feeling and that belief, you know. You, know, I, you and I have talked a couple of times now, so I, I'm fairly aware of your position on social media, on telephones. You've talked about it uh, here today. Uh, I just had the experience of attending concerts where I had to put my phone in a pouch for the first time. I hadn't done that before. And I have to say, I'm a fan of it. Uh, what do you think of that? Uh, have you had that experience of having to put your phone in a pouch to attend an event? I, yeah, well, I'm the wrong person to ask because I often leave my phone at home ah. and charge it. And, um, <laughs> depending on the circumstance, you know, if I need to catch a ride or something. But even when I'm out in public, uh, uh, it's almost always on airplane mode. I'm not addicted to looking down at it yeah. at all. Um, so I'm sort of the wrong person to ask. I keep my Instagram set to private. Yeah. I tweet a tweet specifically about show business, never politics, you know. Um, so I'm, I'm the wrong person to ask. I like that, but I do it anyways. But what do you think it does for comedians in particular or musicians who are finally getting their – sorry, this is another leading question. I feel like these artists are getting their moments back. To put it, uh, yeah, you, yeah, you know, this situation is after my time as a performer. When I quit stand-up, iPhones were not invented yet, yeah. So I never had to contend with that uh, thing. When I was doing stand-up, there was always some guy with a massive camcorder on his shoulder and a giant goddamn spotlight <laughs> blinding me, and you know, they would use these massive VHS tapes. And then as we entered the two thousands, the tapes got smaller and smaller and smaller. But nobody had a machine to uh, play them on. Yeah. And so I don't know what happened to all that footage, but I definitely know that it was all recorded with archaic technology, not digital, and that uh, you'd have to go to some specialist to transfer it. So I never really had to contend with the uh, distraction of phones in the audience. And so I'm the wrong person to ask. Okay, fair enough. I want to ask you a kind of catch-all question here at the end about this book. Uh, we've alluded to other opinions. You've heard about it. I've tried to express some of my own. As people read this book and and ponder it after they're done, do you have any particular hopes of, of what they come away from after reading Outrageous? Well, I don't have any hopes because people don't read books, <laughs> so it's not going to have any impact. But <laughs> let's but, let's say they do. Let's say they actually read. I agree with you. I I don't want to get too bleak. But I do think yeah. we're in well, a room. It's not bleak. It's, it's not bleak. People just don't read. Yeah. And I don't blame them because watching TV and movies is easier and listening to podcasts is easier. Mm. It, 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 any way you assess it, you have to admit reading a book is more difficult than all the other media. Some, you know, some, consuming. Some, some months ago, my son was talking about something and he, he used a word – uh, he's 12. Uh, when he was 11, he he said he was talking about something. He's like, you know, it's like a redemption. And I said, what? What'd you say? You know, it's it's like a redemption. I'm like, that's not a word. And uh, ever since then, we all laughed about it. And we, it comes up from time to time that he just made up a word. But we have this sort of saying in my house right now where if he says, if any of them say something where it doesn't make no sense, I say, uh, you got to read more books, man. And uh, that's just a running joke in my house. You got to read mm -hmm. books because I think it teaches you about language and words and how to formulate thoughts. And I will die on this hill. I know that makes me sound old. There's lots of things to read. But when your son makes up a word like redemption, it's time to put your foot down and say, yeah, yeah I think you got to read a couple books. Are you with me mm. on this, Cliff? 
No, because uh, where does language come from? Where does lang- how does language evolve? You coin phrases and words that don't exist, and they eventually gain traction. All they right, enter fine. the culture, and they become part of the dictionary. The word podcast did not exist in uh, 2001, and now it's in the dictionary. So language has to come from somewhere. So I think your, uh, your son is a forward-thinking and a potentially influential individual. This is great. So my son listens to this show sometimes, and now he's going to ask you to adopt him. Thanks a lot, Cliff. I, uh, I'm doing my best here. No problem. <laughs> anyway, sorry. You, I, I, I t- tore us off course there. You're saying people don't read. Well, yeah. That's fine. I, I think that if in a perfect world where people read, then this book would hopefully have the influence to counteract lies and propaganda that tell us you can't say anything anymore. I started off talking about how some slurs are taboo. I just wanted to explain that, yes, there are some new taboos. They're almost all focused on slurs of one kind or another. Throughout history, various slurs have always been taboo. But in the 20th century, most of what we talk about in comedy today was taboo. Yeah, Political comedy was taboo in most countries for most of the 20th century. It started to change in the early 1960s with the British satire boom. And America picked up on that during the Kennedy years. And that's when political comedy started to become acceptable. It could still be frequently censored on network television and on radio, however. Criticism of religion or even just innocuous depictions, comical depictions of religion was largely taboo for most of the 20th century. Mm. Expressions of sexuality were taboo or censored for most of the 20th century. Swearing on stage could get you arrested for most of the 20th century. As late as 1974, when Blazing Saddles was already playing in movie theaters, as late as 1974, Richard Pryor, who co-wrote Blazing Saddles, was arrested for swearing on stage in Virginia. George Carlin was arrested in the 70s for swearing on stage. So that's pretty late in the 20th century, the 1970s. And still throughout the 1980s and 1990s, you cannot say fuck on AM radio, Mm. on FM radio. You cannot say it on ABC, CBS, NBC. Today, expressions of sexuality, swearing... Criticism of politics, criticism of religion, the major taboos in show business in the 20th century are now permissible on all streaming services, on podcasts, on satellite radio, on cable television, by any objective assessment, by looking at the body of evidence. There is more freedom of speech today in comedy and show business as a whole than most of the 20th century. In fact, in all of the 20th century, despite the fact there are some new taboos, the majority of which are focused on slurs. Well, I appreciate that synopsis and in a sense, and I appreciate that, that sort of uh, wish that people take that away from this book. That's, uh, that's one way of looking at it. It's uh, filling me with redemption. I'll say that. Um, Now, (laughs) well, people are, people are, people are very dogmatic in their arguments. So, Right-wing people will say, well, you can't say anything anymore. People on the left will say that you can say whatever you want. But I'm arguing that there are new taboos. You have to acknowledge that there are some new taboos. But people who deny that there are new taboos 
kind of deny it because they think that those taboos should be taboos. Right. right. So then they'll deny that it's even happening. Yeah. Doesn't mean it's not happening. You got to be objective regardless. And it does bug me a little bit because there are people, you had mentioned the phrase erasure earlier. Yeah. There are well-meaning progressive people who will make statements about show business, about comedy, talk about how there were no women in the past in comedy. Now there are. Uh, there were no women in the writer's room in the past. Now there are. And this is historically inaccurate. Yeah. And it, what, it do, what it does is it erases those groundbreaking women that were there once upon a time. I have a list of over 100 women hmm. who wrote comedy in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s for radio, television, and the stage. But we frequently hear this hyperbole that there was next to no women. And it's an insult to those women who existed. So sometimes people who are of a progressive political persuasion inadvertently, without realizing it, distort history and end up really erasing people that should be celebrated. So it can happen from any political angle. Yeah, and I think to generalize is to be reductive. You can't say a soundbite and incorporate everything like you're saying. Like You can make that statement that there were no women in writer's rooms, and that statement will circulate. But if it's fact-checked, which always happens at some point, hopefully, uh, it's proven to be false. But on some level, I think what people of all political stripes are hoping for is that the damage is already done. Um, well, nobody, wa nobody wants to confess to being a censor or being in favor of censorship. So when it occurs, they'll deny that it's censorship. Right. So a person on the right wing in America will say, well, this isn't censorship. We're protecting the children, yeah. you know, when they suppress, suppress whatever. Yeah. And likewise, a left wing person will say, you know, well, this isn't censorship. We're just suppressing hate speech. If you're interpreting it in a very dogmatic way, both are censorship. Yeah. But the, the 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 crux of it is whether you feel that it's a good thing or a bad thing. And yeah. the generalization, the general uh, purview would be that the suppression of bigotry is a good thing. But is that also censorship? Well, yes, it is. But people will deny that it is because they feel that it's good. Yeah, it is complicated. But I think you've... Uh, done something really remarkable in approaching it the way you have with this book. So again, thank you for this work and thank you and congratulations, I should say, also on it. Uh, do you have future plans that you want to tell us about at this point? Anything coming up beyond this book uh, that you feel comfortable talking about? Well, I just want your listening audience to know that contrary to uh, how I come across in this interview, this book is not boring. It is not... <laughs> Uh, politics. It is like there's, it's, it's full of fun, loving anecdotes, none of which we got into. You know, the family feud, Richard Dawson, herpes scare. Yes. Uh, one of many, you know, uh, you know, a lot of these controversies in retrospect as the years go on, they're funny. Yeah. You know, people take themselves very seriously. So we see the hysteria today about, uh, 1619 project or drag queen stereotype and people are losing their minds. 30 years from now, it's going to look fucking hilarious. Yeah. You look at the controversy over The Simpsons, over Beavis and Butthead, over Three's Company, over Welcome Back Cotter, over Maude, over All in the Family, uh, controversies about The Dick Van Dyke Show, controversies about I Love Lucy, controversies about Elvis, controversies about The Beatles. 
they become hilarious and campy. But a lot of people took the, these controversies very seriously at the time. Yeah. People actually believed that the Beatles were part of a Soviet conspiracy to destabilize American youth. There were people that actually believed that, actually preached that, actually published pamphlets about it, and people that, that believed it. But when you look at all of that now, it just seems so hilarious. It's hysterical. There's a pamphlet from the 60s called uh, uh, Communism, Hypnotism, and the Beatles. And it's one of the funniest things you could ever read. But it was written by somebody who was very serious about it. And it reminds me of these sort of serious controversies today. But as, as time wanes on, almost every controversy ends up looking absurd. Yeah, you're right. And I apologize if I didn't get to the fun stuff in, in our, uh, you know what? Because we live in an age where conspiracists are taken seriously on some level, even though we make fun of them, they cause great harm. I have mm -hmm. less, I have less patience. I can't laugh at them as much. I have a similar experience with satire where the real news is so satiric in its nature, so tone deaf in its nature. I don't know if satire does it for me as much anymore. Still, I, I might enjoy. The odd uh, send-up of the news by Seth Meyers or John Oliver or someone like that. But I don't get the same, like, release that I used to get. So I think I'm like, I'm reading, you're right, they are absurd. And for a long time, they were viewed as absurd, some of these conspiracy theorists and, and strange kooks. But now they get so much airtime and they're taken seriously to some extent that people lose their lives and whatnot. I, I'm just having a little trouble finding the fun in it. Does that make sense? Well, it's not about finding the fun. It's about the importance of ridiculing people who are being ridiculous. You know, yes, a bigot. A I agree bigot, with that. Yeah, a bigot. A bigot is being ridiculous. So ridicule yeah. the bigot. You know, expose them for being absurd. And yeah. ridicule is a good way to expose people for being absurd. I agree that something like a John Oliver doesn't have the. I think part of the reason maybe you find it less joyful is because it doesn't have an effect. You know, yeah. he makes these great videos, but it doesn't seem to uh, move the needle in any way. And certainly the era of Trump, you know, there was a cliche in the media. They would interview comedians and they'd say, well, Trump is good for comedy, right? You have a lot of material. And the reality is that comedy didn't make a lick of difference. And so political comedy becomes a little bit less exciting when you realize that regardless of it, uh, business as usual will continue. Yeah. But even beyond comedy, ridicule is a good way to expose the absurd. Absolutely. I, I will just, uh, so people understand that uh, everyone's experience with this book will be a little bit different. Let me just read you one blurb from the advanced praise for Outrageous. This is by Bob Odenkirk, a, a figure I love dearly. Outrageous is an enlightening and entertaining, detailed and wide-ranging and fun Overview of the never-ending war between censorship and comic voices going all the way back into the 1800s. Cliff Nesteroff is an expert unparalleled on the history of comedy, and this couldn't be a more perfect book for our times. I loved it. Bob Odenkirk. See, that, see that's, what, that's how I feel too, Cliff. I just want you to know I feel the same as Bob. You've done it with this book. Congratulations. Thank you. It's a, it's a bit of a run-on sentence, Bob, but <laughs> we're going to critique. It. It's okay. No one reads anyway. There, no one else is going to read that. That's why I recited it. Uh, okay. So, uh, sorry. Uh, did you, did we talk about future plans? Did you, did you mention what you got coming up next? Future plans. Well, you know, writing books is a lot like selling a movie or a screenplay. You have to pitch it to the publishers and right. you're at their behest. What they say, yes. You do, and what they say, no, you don't get to do. So I have many things uh, half-written that I would love to sell. 
I have a history of Canadian comedy, oh. which I would love to publish for the American market. And it would be an exploration, not just of all the many Canadian comedy stars through the ages, but how Canadian comedy has influenced American comedy and how American comedy has influenced Canadian comedy. So, for instance, the Marx Brothers, before they were famous, before they had made a movie, before they were famous on Broadway, they toured throughout Canada dozens of times and they performed in Canada well over 100 times when they were children. They would play mm -hmm. places like Cornwall, Ontario, Timmins, Ontario, uh, Lethbridge, Alberta. Yeah. And I don't think anybody in Canada uh, knows that the Marx Brothers were in those towns. So I would oh, like wow. to include that type of thing. Yeah. Then, of course, also the connection between Canadian and American uh, comedy in the sense that a lot of the circuits were the same. So American comedians would tour in Canada. Canadian comedians would tour in America. Early Hollywood is very Canadian. Max Sennett, the Keystone Cops, uh, Slapstick, you know, he was the main purveyor and put Charlie Chaplin under contract. Max Sennett was from Montreal. You know, so I would really like to do a deep exploration okay, yeah. of the history of Canadian comedy, the nightclubs that existed in Canada in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s before Yuck Yuck's Comedy Clubs, I don't think a lot of people understand or know about them. Nipsey Russell, who was a great black comic of the mid-century. People remember him from game shows like The Match Game. Mm -hmm. When he got out of the army uh, after World War II, he had been stationed in France, so he learned how to speak French. So when he got into stand-up in 1946-47, the first place he went to was Montreal, and he did two shows a night one completely in English and one completely in French, just for a Quebecois audience. And I don't think a lot of people know about that. So anyways, yeah, I've been researching that. I would love to sell that. I don't know if it's marketable in America. I'm not popular in Canada, so it might be a little bit difficult. I'm sorry you're not um, popular. Also, I'm sorry you're not popular in Canada. I don't understand it. I think your books are wonderful. Yeah, I cannot get uh, any interest in Canada. My books don't get reviewed there, and they sell very poorly. <laughs> and I hate to, I hate to let tell Canadians that they don't read either, because everybody wants to think in Canada that they're smarter than Americans, but uh, Canadians don't read, and Americans don't read. Well, for what it's worth, anytime you want to talk to me, I'll, I'll, I'll have you on, and we'll, we'll talk about your books because I, I think they're really important. I think that if I want to sell a book. A hit book in Canada. I'm going to have to write some sort of like novella about uh, small town hockey and PEI. <laughs> well, I, you're giving away all your ideas now, Cliff. I think the, I think you've stumbled upon it there. Yeah, that's probably true. Well, in any case, I hope everyone listening to this, wherever you live around the world, uh, will check out this book, Outrageous, A History of Showbiz and the Culture Wars by Cliff Nesteroff, available uh, via Abrams Books on November 28th, 2023. Cliff, always a pleasure to get to chat with you. I hope you enjoyed this one, and uh, I wish you the best of luck in the future. Thanks again. Thank you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There you have it, Cliff Nesteroff back on the show. Always lovely to speak with uh, Cliff. He's correct. We didn't get to all the fun aspects of Outrageous. I don't know. We just went where we went, I suppose. And uh, there are obviously a lot of socio-cultural and historical uh, aspects to this work and the cycles I found fascinating. But he's right. There's lots of fun anecdotes, strange anecdotes. Uh, it's a very entertaining and uh, insightful book. So I hope you'll check it out, Outrageous. Thanks again to Cliff for being on this, the 824th episode of Creative Control which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available just about wherever it is you get your podcasts. If you can't find an episode that you've heard about and uh, you don't know where it is, you lost it somehow, or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my monthly newsletter, please visit vishkana.com. You can also like Creative Control or follow show and me on various social media platforms. Creative Control has a Facebook page, which you can follow or like. Uh, on Twitter, at Vish Creative. On Twitter and on Instagram, at Vish Khanna. On Blue Sky, on TikTok, on YouTube, on uh, Threads, uh, on lots of different things. Just look me up, and if it looks like me, there's a 95% chance it's actually me. So thank you for doing all that. Also, please visit uh, patreon.com slash Control to make a flexible monthly donation to support this podcast trying to uh, increase the monthly allotment so that I'm able to at least make a part-time job out of all of the work that I put into this part-time job of making the show. I love making the show. I love it. Don't get me wrong. I I don't mean to sound like I'm complaining, but I do want to see the uh, Patreon increase if possible. So if you've been listening for a long time and you thought, ah, maybe he's always whining about the Patreon at the end, Maybe I should just shut him up with my money. Well, hey, those are tough, hard words for me to hear from you, but uh, I'll take it, uh, along with your hard-earned cash, if that's a possibility. Uh, $6 American or more a month grants you access to exclusive content. You get episodes earlier than everybody else, and uh, also other things, too. And if you want a Creative Control t-shirt, I still have some. Message me on Patreon, and I'll get you one if uh, I can. You just got to go down to the basement fish out what you want and see what happens thank you for your support of the show on patreon also want to thank uh, pizza trocadero the bookshelf planet bean coffee and granddad's donuts for their in-kind support for the show also my dear friend jim guthrie has been supportive of me for a long long time you can learn more about jim at jimguthrie.org. and finally thank you for listening to this conversation with uh, cliff nesteroff i hope you'll read his book outrageous and all his other books Uh, They are, uh, as I've said a few times, essential reading. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast or follow it and tell your friends about it too. And otherwise, I hope you're well and that we talk really, really soon. Bye for now. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.